Well, I take it um, nobody here won the lottery this week, $1.3 billion. I know that there were three winners, but none of them here. And, and to add to the fact that none of us in this room won the lottery, we get the news this week that our water is contaminated and we're all having cancer stuff floating around inside of us. It's meaningless, to quote Solomon. Now, we're in this book called Ecclesiastes. Today we'll be in chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that. But um, Ecclesiastes is part of what's called wisdom literature. It's a set of books of the Bible. There's a Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, three of the books that are called the wisdom literature written by King Solomon. And we understand it to be King Solomon by a lot of references to this man. He was the son of David. He was king of Jerusalem. He was a wealthy and wise man. And he began a project to research and observe the patterns of life, how nature flowed, how people behaved. He observed all these different things. He came to the conclusion that everything was utterly meaningless. A key phrase that he uses, which is really a key to understanding Ecclesiastes, is the phrase, under the sun. He says, everything under the sun is like chasing the wind. Under the sun is a reference for the humanistic viewpoint. It's everything you and I can taste, touch, see, understand from our own perspective. It's not looking above the sun to God. It's just looking at what we can figure out. And if we try to do it on our own, we're helpless. Another, another thing we notice in the first chapter that's a key to understanding Ecclesiastes is every time he refers to God, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, which refers to the God of creation. There's another term for God used in the Bible. It's actually translated Lord. It's, it's Yahweh. It refers to the God of the covenant. And there's a difference. When God is the God of creation, he's distant, he's mysterious, he's, uh, he's hard to trust for some of us. But the God of the covenant, the, the Lord, is the God who can be known, who we enter into a relationship with, who we can fully trust. And God wants us to know him that way. We all need to know that life can be lived not just under the sun, but in his son, in Jesus Christ. And we need more than a maker. We need a master. You know that we need some basic things to life. We need uh, water and oxygen and food and sleep. But we also need hope. And in our culture, we often have these cliches that supposedly give us hope. Things like this. There's a rainbow at the end of every storm. Or there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, they don't tell you that the light at the end of the tunnel is the oncoming train. Because hope that's not anchored in something that's real isn't really hope. You know, hope is Aaron Rodgers with the football with five seconds left. Now, that's hope. There's a chance. By the way, I went to bed last night. If you watched the football game last night, Larry Fitzgerald is still running and people are trying to tackle him. I just can't. It's just so frustrating. So there's hope. We need hope. And God is the God of real, true hope. See, life, let me just tell you this way. Life isn't bad. Life is really worse than you think. There's incredible injustice. There's incredible wickedness. There are incredibly evil, selfish people in this world. And when you find a good one, it's the exception, not the rule. And when we pull our heads out of, the stand, out of the sand and step back and look at the world and all that's around us, it's not, it's not just Solomon who concludes that things are meaningless. We do too. And we get bored and frustrated and, and depressed over what life offers to us. 
And yet God says there's a different way to live. It's a life in the sun. See, Solomon doesn't come right out and tell us that. He tells us that every other option doesn't work, leaving us this only one option that Jesus tells us about, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's going to be our conclusion today as we dive into chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. So before we do that, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you're new to church, I'm going to ask you to do something really strange. We believers look to this book as having some miraculous ability to speak into our lives in a profound way. But it only does that when we're open to it. So I'm going to ask you today, if you just open yourself, that maybe if you've never looked at the Bible before, you'd say today, God, if it's true, if it really is what reality is about, would you speak that into my heart? Would it, would it resonate deep within that it is really what's true? That's what I want to pray right now. Father, speak to us now through your word. Guide us as we go into these ancient writings called the scriptures, which you say are the living word of God, and speak to our need. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the words of Solomon. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. One of the things you'll discover when you read through this book of Ecclesiastes, which deals with a lot of the big questions of life, is it doesn't really answer the big questions of life. It just seems to ask more questions, questions like this. What's wrong with wanting to be happy? Let me ask you a question. Are you happy? What makes you happy? And does that happiness last? I would say that every person in this room has to admit that there is a goal in life to be happy. We think that if I can get that career that doesn't feel like work, if I can exercise to the point that I can get through the door and into my clothes, I'll be happy. If I can marry the person of my dreams, I'd have everlasting bliss. If I could accumulate more stuff, if I could, if I could experiment with thrills, whether it be the risk of money, health, even character, I will find what gives me joy. But once something gives us a measure of joy, what we find out is it doesn't satisfy forever. It leaves a craving and a hunger for more. It's like a mirage that never delivers, and that's what Solomon found out. Now, our founding fathers put in the Constitution three basic freedoms. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice that the last one isn't happiness. 
It's the pursuit of happiness because government cannot promise you happiness. No person can promise you happiness. You can't even promise yourself happiness. Happiness can only come by someone bigger, greater, more profound than us. A few thousand years ago, men with nothing better to do than to sit around and think about people in life, they're called philosophers, they started to develop these theories of what life was all about. One of them was a guy named Epicurus. He developed a philosophy called hedonism. What's hedonism? Hedonism says that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. That your life's focus should be pleasure. That if it feels good, do it. If it tastes good, eat it. That's what life is all about. Go after it. And if there ever was a culture that was a test case of the Epicurean philosophy of life, it's America. We're great at it. We're great at doing what we like. So how has the experiment gone? Let's just take one area of life. We could take a lot of them, but let's just take one area of life. Eating. So we eat what we like. We eat what tastes good. We go to the buffets. We eat things that taste good. I mean, think of it. A Pop-Tart. <laughs> Two layers of flour packed over some gooey, sugary stuff, covered with another layer of sugar, and we call it breakfast. <laughs> and if we're more mature, we don't do that. We just call them pancakes, and we cover them with butter and syrup. <laughs> and, and there's no wonder we get to a point in life where the doctor says, you know what, you're not doing well. Your body's not functioning well. You realize, you look in the mirror and say, yeah, I've grown another chin. I've got, a sec- <laughs> got a second stomach. And the doctor says, if you don't do something, you'll be on medication the rest of your life. So we go to the doctor. We get on a diet. We exercise. We eat supplements. We do all these things that cost us money to deal with pleasing ourselves. And most of the problems we deal with in life come because we've done what felt good. The debt we're dealing with, wasn't it fun spending that money? It sure was. Wasn't that a fair fun? Wasn't messing around fun? Wasn't getting drunk fun? I mean, those things lead us into deeper and deeper places. Then we we find out, you know what? Doing what felt good led me down a deadly path. The problem isn't pleasure, because we were made for pleasure. I mean, I I prefer pizza to Brussels sprouts. I'd rather have a cold Coca-Cola than a bottle of kombucha. That's awful stuff. If you don't know what it is, stay away from it. It's supposed to be healthy. (laughs) I'd rather sit and watch the TV than exercise. We like pleasure more than pain. That's just kind of normal. God gave us pleasure nerve endings sensitivities. But he learned from experience. Solomon did. And he had a lot of opportunity because he had wealth, he had power, he had opportunity to do anything and have anything he wanted. So here's what he did. He says, I said to myself, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I'm going to do this hedonistic experiment. Notice that Solomon didn't say, I'm going to talk to God about this. He didn't say, I'm going to gather spiritual advisors around me to figure out what's best in life. He didn't even say, let me talk to my dad, David, King David. David had a lot of experiences in his life, some hard knocks. He surely learned some good lessons. I'm going to talk to all these. No, no, Solomon says, I will say to myself, 
I'm going to have this little conversation just with me, and I'm going to figure this out. So I'm going to do what I want to do. So what did he do? He looked for pleasure in anything he could find. For example, he, he lists a lot of them. Laughter. I love humor. I love watching sitcoms. In fact, before we go to bed, almost every night, we're watching some kind of a sitcom because it just puts you in a good mood. I love good jokes. There's a guy in our church that told me the other day, he said, he said Pastor, he said, for a long time I was a man trapped inside of a woman's body. And then my mother gave birth. See, he was already laughing because he knew the punchline. Yeah, I, I love laughter. Unfortunately, in today's culture, you watch, you watch contemporary comedians, they, they, sometimes they're so vulgar. Sometimes humor is at the expense of someone. And you, and you hear a joke and you kind of cringe going, I know I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. A lot of times we should feel shame about the things we laugh about. And you know what? Laughter doesn't solve problems. It's a good diversion. That's what it is, a diversion. It's a relief. It's a release valve. We had a friend down in Arizona, and uh, during, during certain times of the year, he would dress up like a clown. you think clowns are happy. This guy dealt with depression. Humor was a diversion. It didn't accomplish anything. That's what Solomon found out. Wine. He liked wine. Alcohol. For centuries, fermented and expensive drink has captivated people. And it's not just wine. It can be beer. It can be rum. It can be brandy, whiskey, vodka, all, all kinds of varieties of alcohol that, that tastes good and often become the diversion as well from the real problems of life. Now, some people can, can have a glass and they're okay with it. Others become addicted and become enslaved to the spirits. Accomplishments. He said he took on great projects, built houses, planted vineyards, built parks, gardens, reservoirs, goals to attain, things you can actually see. Some of you are very goal-oriented. You've got to make a list. You've got to have a next project to work toward because if you don't, you don't feel like life is worth living. You know what's interesting about Solomon? Is he committed himself and gave enormous amounts of money to build the Lord's temple. Took seven years, had 153,000 laborers. After the temple was built, he decided that he needed a house to live in. Took him 13 years to build his house. What does that tell you about Solomon? I'm going to build a house for God, but I'm going to build a bigger house for me. Accomplishments, achieving things. Leisure. He said he had numerous servants. He bought servants, and then when those servants had kids, they grew up as servants within his own house. He needed a meal cooked, needed his back massage, needed his, needed his uh, nails trimmed, needed the TV channel change. I don't know, whatever he needed. He was like the rapper who's got this entourage, you know, and, and they just got it done. He just snapped his finger. What would you do if you had all the money in the world and could have all the people you wanted around you do everything? You'd become lazy. Lazy, selfish, self-centered. The whole world would revolve around you. Possessions. You accumulated more animals, more gold and silver than anyone else. He didn't need to win the lottery. He already had it all. He had everything he'd ever want. Entertainment. Now, they didn't have CDs or albums back then, so he just bought his own entertainment. He had his own group of singers. He wanted music. He got it live. Entertainment. He had a harem. He, he, he had 300 concubines, as we talked last week. I, I don't know, 300, probably different heights, weights, sizes, different skin tones, different eye colors, I mean, and different nationalities. You know, he had all these women. 
Solomon's palace must have been like Hugh Hefner's mansion. Now, he says it's every man's desire. I wouldn't even want to go there. Don't ask your husband any questions about this. But for Solomon, that was his desire. We're more mature than that. Fame. He said it was greater than any man who ever lived in Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't stated by someone else. It wasn't a panel of writers that determined this. It was Solomon assessing himself. I was greater than any man who ever lived before me. And it's... And it, Tell us that he really covered every single base. He said this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Solomon's mission was to help myself more often say yes to my desires. That was his mission. But at the end of the day, here's what his conclusion was. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, I went back through those 11 verses that I read. You know know what struck me? If you take a little highlighter and mark down every time he uses the word I, me, my, and myself, it's all over this chapter. All over this chapter. No mention of of God, no mention of other people, really, a whole lot. It's about himself. In other words, it's all about me. It's all about what I want, what makes me happy. And everything else revolves around me, but you need to know this. And I think we, we tell our kids that, but we need to be reminded the world does not revolve around you or me. It revolves around the Son, meaning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who made this world for himself and put us on this planet for himself. The whole world should revolve around him, not us. That's why we are to live life in the sun. Here's a spiritual equation you need to know. Everything minus Jesus comes to nothing. Everything minus Jesus comes to nothing. You can have everything, but like Mick Jagger, you will sing, I can't get no satisfaction. It doesn't last. Jesus knew that. Solomon looked at what he gained. It was nothing. Jesus said the same thing. What good will it be, Jesus said, for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I mean, what, what do you gain? You get everything else. You get all the pleasures you want, all the money you want, all the stuff you want, all the accolades you want. Okay, you got it. Are you happy? He said, happiness going to last. I'll tell you this. You can laugh until your belly hurts, drink until you're unconscious, accomplish and accumulate so much that everybody knows your name but it will not give you lasting pleasure. You can gain the whole world and the process lose your soul. Here's the truth. If you do not know Jesus, there's coming a day when you will no longer laugh. There's coming a day when you will never find enough alcohol to drown your pain. There's coming a day when it won't matter how many buildings have your name on it. All that matters is has your name been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's all that's going to matter. Because happiness is found in Jesus. It's better to lose everything to get Jesus than to have everything without him. So it makes you ask the question then, can a person really be happy forever? How do you do that? How do you find eternal happiness? See, it's easy to jump to the conclusion, many Christians do, that if pleasure leads to problems, then pleasure is the problem. And Christians have adopted this view. In fact, We've taken the position oftentimes that says, if it feels good, then don't do it. No, 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 no. If it feels good, it can't be right. And so we feel guilty laughing in church. 
We, we can't tell anybody that sex is pleasurable because then they think we're perverted. And, and the shame is we've raised up children who, who we communicate this message to. And the message is this. If you, if you give up everything that is fun and pleasurable and enjoyable in life and be a Christian, then you'll have what you've always wanted. And who wants that? Who wants to give up pleasure? Don't we want to be happy forever? And the truth is God made you to like pleasure. God made you to enjoy life. The problem isn't pleasure. See, sin is fun, but not everything that is fun is sin. So here's the truth. It's not that pursuing pleasure is wrong. It's pursuing pleasure in the wrong place. When we make pleasure the end, when we make getting that thing or that person the end, and if I get that, then I'm going to be happy, anything outside of God, you will end up empty-handed. You will find that you want more. You get that cell phone, sounds really good until you see someone else with a better one. You get that car, you get that outfit, you get those abs, you get whatever you want that you think is going to make you happy until you see someone else who has more, better, and then you want that. And haven't you gone through this process that I've gone through when, when you're in high school? You think, man, I can't wait to get out of my parents' house and have my own place. You go to college and, and you're actually content sharing a tiny dorm room with a roommate. That's okay because that's your own space. Then you get out of college and you want your own apartment. It's just yours. Where you can have people over and you go, that's cool. If I get an apartment, I'm going to be happy. And then you get married and you want to have your own house. You get that little one or two bedroom home and it feels like, man, that is the greatest. Got, got our own place. Family grows, your income grows. Want a bigger house. And you get to the place where many of us in this room are. You're empty nesters. You have the biggest house you've ever had your entire life and the fewest number of people in it, right? And so what do we do to make us feel good? We, we bring in a few cats and dogs to fill it up. <laughs> I see this all over this. You're just as bad as I am. We've got two dogs. Yes, we've got it. It happens to us. And you look around, and you go, man, all this space. I wish I would have had this back when our kids were little, but we didn't. It's because we, we were always wanting more. My wife and I got to go on a great vacation right after Christmas. Had a wonderful time. And as soon as we get back, I'm reflecting on what we've done, but now I'm thinking of the next vacation. <laughs> it's, it's like when you have a great meal immediately afterwards. What are we going to have for dinner? Where's the next place to eat? It's like we're never satisfied with it. That's the, the way the things on this planet work. That's why you have to find lasting happiness somewhere else. Here's what David found. I love what David says. He says it so clearly. Psalm 16, verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures. Where? At your right hand. Lasting, forever, pleasure. Where, the, where is it found? At God's right hand. In, in nearness to God. If you want lasting pleasure, get close to God. And he says kind of a similar thing. Psalm 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord. What is he going to give you? The desires of your heart. Now, that could be taken two ways. One is he gonna, he's going to give you what you desire, or he's actually going to give you the actual desires. I think he does both. I think God changes the things you desire. There's another guy looking for meaning in life, trying to make sense of things, and his name was Asaph. And Psalm 73 tells his story of how he looked around and saw injustice, saw 
people who are prospering that shouldn't and saw people who are good, who are suffering. He's about ready to shout out, meaningless, it's utterly meaningless. But he stops, goes into the sanctuary, and he, and he seeks God, and God reveals to him the truth. God reveals to him their ultimate destiny. And so at the end of Psalm 73, there's this beautiful passage where Asaph says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Last week I told you that there was a man years ago, Blaise Pascal, who said that we all have this empty spot in our soul. They call it the God-shaped vacuum. It's this hole that God made us with that only God can fill. And when you try filling it with laughter and alcohol and sex and accomplishments and anything else, it doesn't fit right. But when you fill it with God, it's like that perfect piece of the puzzle. It's like the last piece, but it fits perfectly. That's what belongs within us. It's God. And Asaph found it because he said this, God is my portion forever. Earth has nothing I desire when I have him. Here's a better equation. Nothing plus Jesus means everything. And people all over the world are finding this. Sometimes they find it quicker in areas where they don't have a lot. They just get, it, get to it quicker. We have to go through Solomon's path to get there, but, but you discover that if I don't have much in life, I don't have anything, but I got Jesus, I really have everything. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm actually pretty happy with that. Everything else just becomes an added blessing. Here's what I know to be true. The greatest joy you'll ever experience will be found in the Son. The greatest happiness you'll ever have in your life will be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That when you bring Jesus Christ into your life, when you open up and say, God, come in. Come in, Christ. Dwell in me. In a, in a mysterious, miraculous way, because obviously... Physically, he doesn't come in, but spiritually, through his Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of us, fills that empty space. He cleanses us of all the shame and guilt and everything we've done before and, and begins to change our desires so that we love the things that he loves. You know, parents, I think we've made a mistake. Many of us in this room have communicated to our kids that they get good grades, they go get their college degree, Find a job they love, marry the person they love, get a good home, find a decent church, that they'll be happy forever. And that is a lie. I'm not saying those things are bad. Those things are all good. But they are not the source of lasting happiness. I know because I know a lot of people who have all of those things, and they're miserable. Because they're missing the key thing, which is Jesus. You need Jesus and all those other things become just extra blessings within your life. It's so sad that we bought into this American dream, which really is the American nightmare. And every generation seems to have to find out for themselves, to be like Solomon and says, I'm going to say to myself, let's experiment and try it out and see if it works for me. And we haven't learned the lessons of Marilyn Monroe's and the Elvis Presley's and the Kurt Cobain's and the Chris Farley's who seemed to have it all and then ended up with nothing. God is so much more. I wish Las Vegas had a billboard that says you're not going to find it here. 
because you're not. Our founding fathers weren't wrong when they said that pursuit of happiness is a basic right, but they just didn't tell us where to find it. Because without the source of joy, you will have sex without love, music without worship, people without relationships, and accomplishments without significance. Jesus has offered all those pleasures of the world. In fact, Satan in the desert says, here, it's all for you. All those things that will give you pleasure right before you, I will give them to you. You know what Jesus did? He says, no way. I don't want it. I've got something better. And so Jesus had a conversation with his father. He didn't talk to himself. He talked to his father and said, what would please you? His father said, I have a plan. A plan that's going to bring you and me eternal joy and bring joy to millions of people on this earth. And it's a journey that's going to take you down not a road of pleasure, but a road of agony, a road of suffering, of severe suffering. That you are going to be nailed to a cross and people are going to spit at you and pull your hair out of your beard. They're going to laugh at you and mock you and crucify you. And yet in the midst of all that pain and suffering that you choose, you will find joy in knowing that the lost will come home. The dead will live again. The dirty, filthy sinners we washed clean. That's how God found everlasting joy. And that's how you will find joy in surrendering yourself to that Jesus. See, there's, there's no lasting joy under the sun. There's only joy to be found in the sun, in a relationship with Jesus. As a church, the best thing we can do for you, in fact, if it was the only thing we could do for you, is to invite you to know Jesus. Because nothing else we teach you is going to make much difference. I know we have had a ton of people in this class going to our marriage workshop. There's, there's like 140 people. But if you don't make Jesus the core of your life as a husband, as a wife, your marriage will never be the blissful relationship God's wanted it to be. That job you got is never going to be all that you thought it would be without Jesus guiding you, directing you. And you know what? You may not even be married. You may not even have that great job. But if you have Jesus, I'm telling you this, you could be eternally happy. That's the kind of Jesus he is. Pleasure isn't the problem. It's everything that competes with finding our ultimate pleasure in God, in Jesus Christ, his son. He wants you to know him intimately.